thank you for being here. This is a marvelous time of year. It's, a, it's the season where we celebrate the birth of Christ. And it's wonderful for me that we're going through the Old Testament looking at the prophetic promises about Jesus during this season. Because those of you who've been part of this class before know that the last Sunday of the year I try to, that we're together, I try to do kind of a Christmas class. When we were doing church history, we looked at the history of Christmas and how it developed. Uh, we, we've done a number of different things throughout uh, uh, the years that I've been honored to get to teach. And this year, we'll be looking with some specificity on the promises in the Old Testament about Jesus that relate to his birth itself. And so it'll be a lot of fun to look at that. So it'll still be within the spirit of the long and winding road. Now, if you're new to this class, what we're doing is we're teaching up until uh, probably the end of January when church-wide will start a, a study in Colossians that, that we'll be studying here. But until that time, we're going through the Old Testament in a series I've called The Long and Winding Road. It's a series about ways that we see Jesus in the Old Testament, either by direct prophecies where God said, I'm going to do this, or through prophetic stories where the story that unfolds is a story about Jesus. And that's what we've seen as we've looked at Moses and the Exodus Today is our third and final section of Moses and the Exodus in the way that it shows a prophetic story that is an image for us so that we can see Jesus in the pages of the Old Testament. Now, it's useful for us in a lot of ways. It helps us understand God. It helps affirm our faith because it really is remarkable how prophetic those words are and how we can see that in the life, death, and work, and ministry, and resurrection of Jesus. But it's also important because it helps us understand the New Testament better because the experiences of Jesus are experiences in the Gospels that are unfolding the prophetic stories that we find in the Old Testament. Nowhere is that more apparent for me than in the story of Moses and the Ten Commandments. Now, I want to make sure we're all on the same page, but I don't want to be redundant. I don't have a lot of extra time, so we're going to do the review part of this really fast. If you find it's not making sense to you, then you can go back and watch it through the wonders of our internet team. By the way, uh, we uh, were late to the party yesterday uh, and, and hated that, but uh, coinciding with the start of the party was the funeral service for Edward Fudge. And he was a friend of this class, and, and it was neat to, to get to be a part of the funeral in two different ways. Uh, one is, is I got to speak at the funeral, and, and that was an honor. Edward had written his funeral out ahead of time and, and had uh, specified who would be speaking and all, and that was a real, a real treasure and a real honor. But the second way to, we got to be a part, and it's we, is for the family remembrances at the end. Edward's son, Jeremy, who's a lawyer up in Dallas, took video clips from his father's life, 
and said, Dad would want to get to speak at his own funeral. He said, so I'm going to take these video clips and I'll just play them for you. And these are seven different vignettes that speak about Edward and his life. And the first would be Edward greeting you. Your wife's in Branson, Missouri, and you came to class anyway. Kudos to you, Hank. You could have skipped today and no one would have known. <laughs> Instead, you're here and Miss Carolyn's out partying in Branson. Um, Another way that you were present and that I was present is in those video clips. It started out with one where Edward just welcomed everyone. And, and he said uh, he was speaking somewhere. And he said, I'm really glad you all showed up today. If you all had not been here and it had just been me, it would have been pretty embarrassing. And that's the way they started out the family remembrances for the funeral. And after that, uh, there were six more clips but two of the clips came from Edward in this class. And so because of our video team and our internet team and, and our switchboard sound team and all of you people who work so hard, you made a real difference in, and you were present at Edward's funeral yesterday in a really neat way. So I, I thought you'd want to know that. Um, uh, and I can't end this without saying Edward Fudge actually has a really good book he wrote about how the entire Bible tells the story of Jesus. And I ought to go back and find that book and see if it's still in print. That'd be a great, uh, uh, great thing to get for y'all. But I'll go back and check. Anyway, um, back to the subject. So here's your quick review. Moses, extremely important character. More written about Moses than any other character in the Old Testament. In fact, we've got Moses is the one who, who's considered not just the source, but the subject of the first five books of the Old Testament. They're called the books of Moses, as well as being called the law or the Torah, which is Hebrew for law. Now, four of those books tell the story of Moses' life, and they tell us that Moses was a leader of God's people. He was a liberator for God's people and he was a lawgiver for God's people. And we'll look at lawgiver today as well as a, an, another aspect of it. But Moses had encounters with God that were unequaled by any other person in the entire history of the Bible until Jesus. And that's why the Jewish people at the time of Jesus still saw Moses as the top of the top of the pyramid. Above even Father Abraham, Moses was the one. And so we see that in their five scrolls or their five books of Moses. The first one that doesn't mention Moses lays the foundation for the story of Moses, and that's Genesis. Exodus gives the story about Moses leading the people on their exodus out of, Israel, out of Egypt. The third book is Leviticus, comes from the word Levite, because that's the book that gives the rules and instructions for living that the Levites needed for themselves and to teach others. The fourth book of Moses is called by us Numbers, and it's the book that numbers the people and shows the nation of Israel becoming one of a unified nation of faith. The last and final book is Deuteronomy, and that's one that gives Moses' speeches and his final instructions. And so if we look at those and we understand those, we are remembering throughout this Exodus illustration that this isn't something the church made up. 
The idea that Jesus fulfills this Mosaic promise is not something the church just made up. It's something Moses himself said would happen. Moses said that a prophet like him, a leader, a liberator, a lawgiver, a prophet like him from the midst, out of Israel's offspring, the Lord, our God, would cause to arise before all of Israel. Moses told Israel, be looking for him and listen to him. That prophecy was not met. It wasn't met in the lifetime of Moses. If we put the prophecy up there, Israel's looking for someone like Moses. But we know at the end of Deuteronomy, as the book was put together, and it's put together after Moses is dead because it has the death of Moses in it. And the prophet that put it together said that there hasn't been a prophet like Moses arising in Israel since. And you get that consistent theme throughout all of the Old Testament. Throughout all of the books, they're saying, keep studying the law, keep studying the books of Moses. Memorize these things, meditate on these things, chew on these things, because you'll know someone is coming as part of the promise. But you also read it and you see that that person's not come yet. And so you're hanging on for that. And you can read all of those books But they don't give you the person. They give you photographs and stories of who the person's going to be so that you, Israel, and us, would recognize the Messiah. This is why Jesus told the people, you got no excuse for not knowing me. He says, Moses talked about me. Moses told you about me. Moses lived stories that illustrate me. And Moses, as great as he was, could not be the Messiah for the people. Because Moses was a sinful human. Heavens. He can't even, when God calls him, he doesn't even honor the call of God until God makes his point with the stick. Moses, God tells him, speak to the rock the second time for water to come out. Moses can't keep the law of God. He can't even keep the instructions of God. Moses makes lots of mistakes. He's not sinless. Moses cannot solve the problems that are given in that very first book that gives the foundations for the Moses story. For all that Moses was, for all that Moses did, Moses could never solve the problem of Eden. Giving us the law can't solve the problem of Eden. The problem of Eden has been set up. It's that man and woman are made to be in a relationship with God. But because of disobedience, we live in rebellion to God. Think about it with your kids. You had to teach your kids to obey, didn't you? How many of you ever had to teach your, teach your kids to disobey? That come by that pretty natural. I want to teach you how to lie. You don't have to teach them that. You got to teach them not to. Let me teach you how to be rebellious. You don't got to teach them that. I want to teach you to be terrible. No, that comes at two. 
You don't have to teach them. You gotta, you gotta teach them through it. I mean, disobedience is a, a, a bondage. It's a slavery that we're born into. Now, the solution's gotta be from God. God made the promise that He would be the solution. He said, from the seed of woman will come a single male who will solve the problem that Satan has started. And that solution is given in that book of Genesis that it's not just through the offspring of woman, but it's going to be through the seed of Abraham, through the seed of Isaac, and through the seed of Jacob. And that hadn't happened yet by the time Moses is dead or even afterwards as those books are put together. Moses didn't solve the problem of sin. Paul will say to the Galatians, law was never going to solve the problem of sin. One of the reasons we got law is so that we would understand the problem of sin. Now all of a sudden you've been told the Lord to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. Well, how many of you have done that today? Now you're being told to love your neighbor as yourself. How many of you have done that today? I mean, what the law does is it shows us how desperately we need a solution to sin because we truly are enslaved to it. And Moses isn't going to solve that problem. But in Jesus, we have the solution. And some people caught on real quick. Not fully, but real quick. The Apostle Philip, he goes to find his cousin, Nathaniel, And he says to him, we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel's reply is, could anything good come out of Nazareth? It's like it was, uh, think of Nazareth like, I don't want to say College Station. I'd say <laughs> Austin. Uh, could anything good come out of Nazareth? There is a Bible translation called the Cotton Patch Version that a fellow wrote for his Ph.D. in Greek. And uh, he translated the Greek New Testament into Georgian farmer dialect. So Jerusalem is Atlanta. <laughs> but in this passage it says, Hey, you ever heard of anything useful coming out of Valdosta? That's Nazareth. And that's the, the, the thrust of this is... We finally found the person we've been looking for for over a thousand years. So who was this Moses? Jesus is one like Moses. Well, we talked about him getting called from within the burning bush. God giving him the message. We talked about him going down into Egypt and talked about the blood of the Lamb. And how Jesus becomes that Passover blood of the Lamb. 
And through the blood of the Lamb, the people were redeemed from the slavery of Egypt and Pharaoh and taken to the promised land in like manner. We are redeemed from the slavery of sin and taken to the promised land by the blood of the Lamb. Paul said it in Romans 6, 17 and 18, You who were once slaves of sin, having been set free from sin and become slaves of righteousness. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 8. Your boasting's not good. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. He's talking about the Exodus story. The people were told, don't put leaven in your bread. And in the Passover, you have to clear all of the leaven out of your house. The Passover, Pesach, is the celebration the remembrance of the passing over of the angel of death by the blood of the Lamb. And he says, Christ is our Passover Lamb who's been sacrificed. The blood that covers you, that allows the angel of death to pass over you, that liberates you from slavery to sin and takes you to the promised land, that is the blood of the Lamb of Jesus. That's who Moses was writing about. Uh, I, I got to digress for just a moment. I just had the privilege of teaching this lesson over at, at Jersey Village, though it's the lesson that we're reviewing right now. But I said to them at the end, I said, think about the miserable things you have to endure in your life. Okay, just think about it for a moment. How would you like to have been one of those Israelites enslaved to Pharaoh? You understand they did not get time and a half for overtime. You understand they didn't really even get paid. They had to make their living in addition to doing Pharaoh's work. I don't want to make bricks without straw. I don't want to make bricks at all. I don't want to live without air conditioning, especially in Egypt. I don't want to be told that I've got to leave my house of 400 years to go haul out in the wilderness carrying everything where I don't have enough water where I don't have enough food and I don't do it alone I've got to do it with like thousands and thousands of people because you know your tent's going to be pitched next to someone who's going to drive you crazy Mainly because you're driving them crazy. And who wants to do any of that? The Israelites were not having a lot of fun. They were, oh God, this is horrible. At least by the Nile we had leeks and onions. I don't get that. I hate leeks and onions. But they're whining and moaning. Who wants to do that? Who wants to be scared witless because Pharaoh's army's coming down on you and your whole way out is blocked by the Reed Sea. Who really wants to sit at the foot of some mountain while Moses is up there with all the lightning and thunder, wondering if he's ever going to come back? Who wants to deal with this scary God that you don't really know? I mean, it's not a lot of fun, right? 
If you were there, it would not be a lot of fun. But let me ask you this. What if those Israelites had been told, I know this isn't fun what you're going through, but God is going to use this and use you to teach a bunch of Baptists on Champion Forest and Strack in 3,000 some hundred years from now so that they will know that Jesus is going to be their source and their solution to their sin. You go through suffering. They went through suffering truly for the cause of Christ. Somehow I think that might make that suffering not fun, but cool. If you get the difference. I don't think all of a sudden it'd be fun to be back then, but I think it would have been kind of cool to know that I'm getting to live out a story that's going to illustrate to people for the rest of history who Jesus the Messiah is. That's not a bad ride. And that's what we've got here. And so they're brought out of slavery to sin just as we, or to Pharaoh just as we're brought out of slavery to sin, but we're not abandoned there. God brings us out, but He leads us in life. Heaven forbid we be set free from sin only to ignore God's leading afterwards. You see, God, by day and a pillar of cloud, guided them on their way by night and a pillar of fire. God told them when to go, where to go, and how to go. God took care of them. And all of this they did taking Joseph's bones from 400 years earlier. Go dig up some bones from the early 1600s and you can see what it looked like. Why? Because it shows the link. All of this is part of God's promise. All of this links up to the book of Genesis. The Bible doesn't start with Exodus. It doesn't start with Moses. It starts with Creation and humanity and fellowship with God. And all of this is important. So the waters were divided. The Israelites go through the waters. Paul says it this way. It's like baptism. You don't have to question, do I have enough faith? You can look back at your baptism and say, hey, I put my trust in God. Else that would have been a bath. But it wasn't a bath, it was a baptism. Well, but did I have enough faith? I've heard that question so many times. Look, none of you have enough faith. None of us have enough faith to get saved on our own faith. But through our faith, we get the righteousness of Jesus, including His perfect faith. He's the only one who had perfect faith. You don't, I don't. Pastor David doesn't. Pastor Brent doesn't. Hank doesn't. Mary Lee doesn't. Judge John doesn't. None of you. None of me. We don't have perfect faith. But we've got enough that we trusted God to do something we wouldn't have done otherwise. And in that, we know that the perfect faith of Jesus is a saving faith for us. We talked last week about how the Lord said to Moses, I'll rain down bread from heaven. Didn't say I'm going to cause it to come up from the rocks. It's not going to grow like a fungus. 
It's not going to poof up here. It's raining down from heaven because that's who Jesus is. That's the John 6 passage where Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. For I have come down from heaven. Jesus is echoing that. I am the bread of life. The manna sustained for a day. Except sixth day manna. That was good for two days. But we have Jesus forever. He only came down once, but He instills in us. He's a bread of life. He's someone we have every day of our life. He doesn't have to come down more than once. Once was sufficient because He's always present within His children and His church. We talked about how Jesus was greater than Moses. Moses, they divided the sea for Him to walk on. I mean, for Him to walk on dry land. Jesus just walked on it. And John inserted that story in there. So all of this is the review. I want to leave the review behind because it's taken me too long. And I want to get to the next stuff. The Lord said to Moses, this is Moses the lawgiver, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which, who wrote? I have written for their instruction. God writes on stone. Doesn't just cause it to appear. He writes it on the stone. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? Seriously, isn't that incredible? Look at John 7. 22 through 23. John 7, 22 through 23. Um, Jesus has healed a man on the Sabbath. And it's got the people all upset because he seems to have violated the law of Moses. So they were ready to stone Jesus over it. Jesus said, I did one work and you all marvel at it. I mean, it was a miracle. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses. It actually was given to Abraham. It predates Moses. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances. Judge with right judgment. The people were all upset because Jesus seemed to transgress the law of Moses. Now when you read John, it's really interesting how it's put together. There is a passage in John 8 that comes on the heels of this. And the passage in John 8 is one that the oldest manuscripts don't seem to indicate it was there. But it is so old that we can't figure out when it first came in. And it certainly is there in the prophetic scriptures. Now does that mean 
that it wasn't in the first version of John he wrote, and it was in subsequent writings, and it was integrated in. We don't know. But it's an amazing story that is absolutely consistent with the Gospels and the teaching of Jesus. And I think the church has rightly put it in there. You'll see in the English Standard Version, it says up at the top, the earliest manuscripts don't include John 7:53 to 8:11, and one reason scholars don't uh, typically think that it was in the original is because it just seems to be wildly inserted into a story, and if you take it out, the whole narrative reads consistent. So it's 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 a story that's inserted within a story that it wouldn't be otherwise. If you see what's in front of it, for example, um, it's what I just read about and uh, how Jesus continues at this festival to talk about these things and there's division among the people about who Jesus is and he talks about how he's uh, 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 law, uh, he's, he's uh, living water, etc., etc. And they send a lawyer to Jesus, Nicodemus, and says... Does our law, or Nicodemus says to the people, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they said, oh, are you from Galilee too? No prophet comes from Galilee. And then if you ignore the story in the middle, you get to this. And Jesus again spoke to them saying, I'm the light of the world. So it makes sense if you take the story out. It reads consistent. You following me? But I want to tell you something. I still think the story belongs right there in the middle where it sticks out like a sore thumb. Because it only sticks out like a sore thumb if you don't understand the story. If you understand the story, it makes great sense. To understand the story, you need to see Jesus in the Old Testament. Look at the story that... Authorities recognize aren't in the oldest manuscripts. Early in the morning, Jesus comes to the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. Now the scribes and the Pharisees, they brought a woman who'd been caught in adultery. That's not quite in focus, is it? There we go. And placing her in the midst, they said to Jesus, Teacher, This woman's been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. You got it? What do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him, figuring Jesus wouldn't endorse Moses. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. What did he write? John doesn't tell us. Oh, some scholars speculate he was writing their sins. Some scholars speculate he was writing any number of different things. I think if what he was writing was important, John would have told us. It's not what he was writing, it's that he was writing. With his finger 
on the ground up rock. Who wrote the law with his finger? God did. Moses told us in the law. No. God told you in the law. Get your source right. Moses carried the law. God wrote the law with his finger. And Jesus is God. Don't ask Jesus what Moses said in the law. Jesus wrote the law. He can write with his finger. And that's what he's doing. It's kind of like, hey, so you want to tell me what Moses commanded you to do? Who wrote the law with his finger? And they continue. They don't get it. You know, bless their hearts. Clueless. Continued to ask him, Come on, Jesus. Are you stumped? Cat got your tongue? Don't know what to say? Caught you in a trap? Jesus stands up and says, Hey, let you, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. And then he bends down and he starts writing on the ground. And they kind of peter out as they realize they can't. I mean, in that entire crowd, there's only one person without sin who can throw the stone. And he didn't. That's Jesus. See, Moses gets to go up and God writes the law. Jesus is this. This is John chapter 8. This is John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. And you might be saying, well, but they already have the law. How can Jesus be a lawgiver? The law's already been given through Moses. <laughs> Jeremiah 31. 31 through 34, Jesus Jesus is just living out the prophecies. And they needed to know this. They should know this. Jeremiah, their prophet. Jeremiah, the prophet, writes, Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. The covenant they broke. This is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. The God who writes the law will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother saying, Know the Lord. They're going to know me. From the least to the greatest, and I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. God will write His law on our hearts. Jesus is the lawgiver. Jesus is in your heart if you know God. You have the lawgiver in your heart. Now, in the process of this, as we go back to the PowerPoint and we go back through the Exodus, in the process of this, they go out and 
Moses tells them, I want you to make a, I mean, uh, uh, God says to Moses, I want you to make a sanctuary so that I may dwell in their midst. And so Moses constructs it and God says, and I want you to make it exactly the way I tell you. And God proceeds to tell him how to make the sanctuary, the tabernacle, which is really this massive construction of tents. And it's in the holiest of holies where the, the Ark of the Covenant will be. And there's a place for an altar for sacrifice. And this is where God's going to dwell with the people. And God, once they make it, God descends on it in smoke and fire. and They can't even go in it. And the holiest of holies, only the high priest gets to go in once a year on the Day of Atonement. But this is where God dwells with people. And when the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God would lift up from the tabernacle and move, the people would uh, take it all down and haul it to wherever God was going. And this is the dwelling place. The tabernacle is where God would meet those people who He had chosen and pulled out of slavery with the promised land in their future. You with me? And I say that because of John 1.14. You remember John starts his gospel out. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14 he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You got it? The word dwelt in the Greek is tabernacled, pitched his tent. John is saying that the tabernacle itself was a representation of Jesus. That it's in Jesus that God dwells with his people. Jesus is where God dwells in our midst. Jesus is where heaven meets the people. And when Jesus moves, we move. We follow Him. And we take our direction from Him. And when we see Jesus, we're seeing the glory of God. Jesus is God dwelling with humanity. Jesus is the tabernacle. And so you've got passages like Exodus 25, 17, which tells them as part of the tabernacle that they're supposed to make something pretty cool. Exodus 25, 17. This is describing how they're going to make the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant is going to have a mercy seat of pure gold. It's got angels, cherubs on top of it. And this mercy seat goes on top of the ark. There I will meet with you from above the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony. There I'll meet with you. There I'll speak with you about all that I'll give you in commandment for the people of Israel. It's this mercy seat. It's this, the, the ark of the covenant. Let's zoom back for a moment. The Ark of the Covenant, you all have seen this, it's on Raiders of the Lost Ark. The Ark of the Covenant has got these cherubs that have their, their, their wings that almost touch. That's your cherub. I'm not sure you knew what they look like, now you do. Pretty, pretty sure I'm 
like the graphic artist for the Lord. Okay? You've got the mercy seat, and the mercy seat is pure gold. And it's on the mercy seat that the priest would come and sprinkle the blood of the sacrifices for the people. So it gets the blood of the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur. In the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement today is celebrated differently by Jews, but you go back to the Old Testament. The Day of Atonement is celebrated, if celebration's the right word, it's honored, maybe a better word, by taking a sacrificed lamb and sprinkling the blood and saying that that will be what God sees. God will meet His people and speak to His people through the mercy seat. The Greek word that's used to translate this, mercy seat, in Greek is this word hilasterion. Hill last on. All right? And I tell you that because, uh, how am I doing time-wise? I'm not doing great. Okay. Well, let's go to the PowerPoint then. Uh, and I, you can at least get the scriptures. And this is in the handout if you want to get it. If you don't already have it, uh, email Brent. Hebrews 9 and Romans 3.25 both talk about the mercy seat. Hill last on. Hebrews 9.5 and Romans 3.25. Hebrews 9.5. Galatians and Ephesians. Philippians, Colossians. Hebrews 9.5. He's talking about the first covenant had regulations for worship. A tent was prepared. This is the tabernacle. The first section had the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It's called the holy place. Behind this... A second curtain was the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. It had a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold. There was a golden urn holding manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the hill Asterion, the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. That's all he had time for. Romans 3.25. Romans 3.25, Paul is talking. Paul is talking about how everyone has sinned and fallen short of God's glory, but everyone's justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Propitiation means um, uh, someone who meets God's just wrath. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine patience, He'd passed over former sins. It was to show that God is righteous at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier. Now, propitiation 
by his blood. We've got that in Greek. A few of you read Greek, so it's worth putting up here. 325. Here it is. Here it is. There's the propitiation. Let me pronounce that for you. Hilasterion. It's mercy seat. Jesus is the mercy seat. Paul's using the word mercy seat. It's just translated by the ESV. Propitiation. Because that's the function of the blood that was sprinkled on the mercy seat. To meet the just demands of a just God and a righteous God. But that hilasterion that we were looking at is Jesus. Because Jesus is where the atoning is done. And it's where God meets us. And it's where God instructs us. And it's where God forgives us. Jesus is the mercy seat. And so, yes, Moses was told to make it and make it clearly that way because it fulfilled a purpose. And that's what it was. So, what do we have? Prophet like Moses finally comes. We don't have time for this. We need to get to the points for home. So let me zoom quickly and uh, read it in the lesson. There we go. We're getting there. We're getting there. We're getting there. Bam, 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 bam. We could stay till two. Clearly, I did this on the airplane. Okay. There we go. Let's start here. Know the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's what we've got in Jesus. It's been prophesied for thousands of years. It's why the church caught fire and so many Jews met Jesus. It's why 3,000 good Jews became Christians on the very first day of Pentecost church. So I want to know God. I want to be, I want in an intimate relationship with God. Because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but we're all justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, who's the mercy seat. He's the propitiation. He's the one that makes it right with God. God doesn't have to change His character to love me and to accept me and to be in fellowship with me. I've been forgiven. I've been set free. And it's a marvelous situation. Holy, holy, holy. Don't you love that song we sing? The one, uh, 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 heaven's mercy seat. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. For our creation I sing. You know that one? That's it, man. Heaven's mercy seat. So now when you sing that, you've got you to plug in class. If you believed Moses, Jesus said, you'd believe me. He wrote of me. He lived my life. And I can't read the story of Moses without saying, I believe. It, it, it's so clearly prophetic of Jesus. I don't know how, how, how I could read it otherwise. So with that, thank you very much. And, and let me bless you in the name of Jesus. We ran over four minutes and I apologize. Father... 
It's interesting to me to run over four minutes when we could spend hours and hours and hours on this. The depths of your love for us, the riches of, of your compassion, the, 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 we can't even begin to plumb, Father, in the time we've got or in the brain cells we have. But it doesn't stop us from standing in amazement, sitting in amazement at who you are and what you've done in this world for us. And so I pray that everybody who hears this message will be touched by your spirit and moved in faith to proclaim your wondrous love in Jesus. Our Lord and Savior. Amen.